Good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to this BTOG masterclass, the latest in our series of approximately monthly webinars. And we've called this one perioperative therapies. And uh, I'm expecting, I can't actually see the numbers yet, but I, I'm expecting there to be quite a lot of people online for this one because we've got some two very, very topical subjects and two really first class speakers um, who I will introduce you to in a moment. Um, the usual kind of um, uh, webinar housekeeping. Um, uh, um, I think we can go on to the next slide, having shown you lovely pictures of Dawn and Gina, who, who um, without whom none of this would be happening. Um, you can submit your questions. Really importantly, it is very easy to submit questions and uh, this is what really makes a difference. I, I think the accessibility of our speakers in these webinars. So do, do please feel free to uh, submit a written question through the um, uh, text control panel at any time and I will uh, collate those and recycle them to our speakers. We're going to have a Q&A after each of our presentations today. Um, afterwards, uh, you can send us your uh, email feedback and um, if you do that, we can, in response, send you a certificate of attendance if you need that for CPD purposes. So this is our agenda. We will get you out of here um, in time to see a little bit of the evening sun, I hope, uh, within the hour. Um, uh, the speakers who um, we've asked to divide between them the two subjects of um, targeted therapies in the adjuvant setting and immunotherapy around um, uh, the perioperative uh, uh, situation are Ali Gray-Stoke um, and Samreen Ahmed, who, you know, between them are, uh, I think, without doubt, um, two of the leading lung cancer opinions in the UK and um, really globally. So we're very privileged to have their time and um, uh, to have the opportunity to ask some questions afterwards. So without any further ado, Alistair, Ray Stoke, you will be familiar with, I'm sure. He's senior lecturer and consultant medical oncologist at, uh, at Newcastle University in the Northern Centre for Cancer Care. And his subject is adjuvant targeted therapy. So over to you, Alistair. Uh, thank you very much, and thank you very much to, to BTOG for inviting me to talk about this uh, really interesting area. As always, where you present these uh, and develop these slide decks, you, you, you end up learning as much as when you talk about it to an audience, and really looking forward to your questions. Um, so uh, these are my disclosures. I'm going to actually start off today uh, with a clinical case that uh, we all of us might encounter in our MDTs. Uh, so this is a 52-year-old man. As you can see, he's a never smoker, completely fit and well. Uh, past medical history of hypertension on Lysata and, and the increasing cough on Lysata led to him being investigated. And uh, so he, he's been worked up appropriately by the respiratory physicians with uh, a PET, sorry, CT uh, PET, um, CT head and, and a biopsy. And uh, been brought to the MDT and staging is T3 and N1M0. And certainly at this time, uh, normally when I'm uh, sat in, in the MDT, I'd go to sleep and check my email because this patient is not for me. He's got uh, surgically resectable disease and the surgeon needs to be at them. Uh, 
But then it turns out on the biopsy that not only is this an adenocarcinoma, but with his non-smoking status, he has one of the common mutations in EGFR. Uh, the other oncogenes are negative, and he, we've also done the PDL1 status, which is uh, 55%. And so you have to wake up because the MDT have asked you some questions. Uh, number one, they want to know is, well, what's the implications on prognosis of this EGFR mutation? Is this patient going to do better or worse? And what should we be doing in terms of treatment? You know, are you going to recommend some drugs uh, either before or after? Are you going to recommend uh, um, an EGFR TKI, uh, some chemotherapy, or even some immunotherapy, given that high pd one expression? So I'm hopeful by, that by the end of this evening that you will be able to answer all those questions appropriately. I'm going to concentrate on EGFRs because as with all targeted treatments, you know, this is the one where our treatment paradigms have changed, but we will start to talk about some of the other key molecular abnormalities as I come to the end of my presentation. So uh, what about prognosis first? So uh, this is a publication of the ETOP landscape uh, platform. So looking at surgically resected uh, tumors in Europe, you can see that their EGFR rate was, I think in the, uh, in the adenocarcinomas was about 15%, which is slightly more than I see in the Northeast, but about right for Europe. And what you'll see if you look at the Kaplan-Meier on the right is that they commented that there didn't seem to be any particular difference in survival in the EGFR mutant patients in the blue compared to the rest of the population in the red, suggesting no prognostic implications. Uh, there is also this complicated meta-analysis out there that was published a few years ago, again, looking at the implications of EGFR um, on uh, survival in a resected setting. And what you can see on the uh, left is the uh, forest plot after they removed some of the more uh, uh, heterogeneous studies. And you can see they came up with a hazard ratio of 0.77, suggesting that these patients might do slightly better than the patients that are not EGFR mutated. And if you look on the overall survival on the right, this seemed to be feeding through to overall survival. However, you can see that many of those studies are very small and were quite heterogeneous with large estimates about survival. So I think this does need to be taken with a, a slight pinch of salt. So, so in terms of prognosis, I think you have to be saying uh, to your MDT, well, it may be slightly better, um, but maybe not, <laughs> a bit unclear. So uh, I guess the, re the real driver for this presentation is that we now have uh, access to osimertinib in, in the uh, adjuvant setting. So following on the publication of Adora in the New England Journal of, of Medicine, and then um, in the new Brexit world, we have different regulatory hurdles. And um, the first one that came through what's called Project Orbis, which is a joint uh, way of evaluating drugs between America, Canada, Switzerland, and the UK was osimertinib, and uh, the funding was agreed with AstraZeneca at the same time. So uh, pretty much straight away, we are now able to give adjuvant osimertinib. So um, let's look at some of the data and underlying that. So this is the uh, slide uh, uh, outlining the Adora uh, uh, study design that was presented at ESMO initially. And there's a few things I wanted to point out to you in terms of how we interpret this data. So number one, uh, this study was only for EGFR with common mutations. There was one patient that also had a T790M mutation concomitantly, but none of your rare exon 18 or exon 20 mutations would have been eligible. They had to have a, a resection for T1B23A uh, uh, disease, and that was staged using TNM7. There are some slight differences between uh, 7 and 8 that we can talk about if required. And they had to ra be randomized within 10 weeks of adjuvant, uh, if they didn't have surgery, with, if they didn't have adjuvant chemotherapy, or 26 weeks if they did. And that's now fed forward into the blue tech form we have to fill in. 
They had treatment for up to three years if they didn't uh, develop rec recurrence. And you can see that they got imaged relatively frequently. Uh, so week 12, 24, every 24 weeks up to, up to five years and then yearly thereafter. But with no mandated brain scanning, which is important when we look at one of the endpoints that has been reported. So uh, you'll be aware that this was a positive study. Actually, the primary endpoint was restricted to the stage two to three A's. The one B's were not included in the primary endpoint, but you can see a very positive study, uh, a major impact on disease-free survival with a hazard ratio of 0.17, median uh, disease-free survival of 19.6 months and not reached in the osimertinib arm. Uh, still relatively immature, you can see lots of censoring occurring around about the 36-month mark when patients were really starting to finish their osimertinib, or sometimes even before then. They did also present the data for the whole study population, including stage 1B B disease, and you can see that, again, this was still positive, hazard ratio 0.2. And we have our beautiful forest plot showing that uh, the benefit of uh, osimertinib in terms of disease um, recurrence was seen across uh, all uh, key subgroups, including, I'll, I'll demonstrate some important ones, so no difference between Asians and non-Asians. The stage 1B is maybe not getting as much benefit as the 2 to 3 A's, which are at higher risk of relapse. Uh, both mutation types seem to be relatively similar, maybe more benefit in the exon 19 DELs, and that was also seen in flora. And also, uh, and importantly for our clinical practice, uh, no difference if you received adjuvant chemotherapy or not. And in the primary population of stage two to three A, 75, well, I think 76% of them did receive adjuvant chemotherapy. It's much less in the stage one B as you, as you might anticipate. But um, most of these patients did receive adjuvant chemotherapy. So uh, questions when we're thinking about how we take this forward. So we've got disease-free survival. Does this correlate to overall survival? If patients do relapse, where are they going to relapse? And then what do we do with them when they relapse? And is there any differences in how we can manage them uh, if they relapse when they're in, on their three years of treatment or, you know, one or two years later? And, you know, if we are going to use osimertinib, which we regard as a well-tolerated drug in the metastatic setting, is it different when we give it in the adjuvant setting where uh, patients may not experience some of the improvements in disease-related symptoms that we'd expect in stage four setting? So uh, a couple of studies we, I just wanted to comment on where, if we're talking about overall survival. So uh, this was the adjuvant study run in China, the Tong study, where they looked at patients with resected EGFR disease, and they randomized to either chemotherapy or gefitinib. And they presented um, a couple of years back in ASCO and showed a positive uh, hazard ratio for disease-free survival at 0.56. So not as good as we saw in the Ozomertinib Adura study, but what you'll see is they recently updated for overall survival and there was no difference in overall survival seen. So in this context, disease-free survival did not, but this was gefitinib versus chemotherapy and a smaller study. Um, this, this is the... Uh, um, a radiant study where they gave adjuvant allotinib, regardless of uh, whether you had an EGFR mutation or not, but they did do a key subgroup analysis of the EGFR mutants. And again, they reported a positive disease-free survival benefit in the EGFR mutants in those patients that received allotinib in the JCO publication. And uh, uh, Professor O'Brien kindly gave me the presentation from ASCO in 2015, later that year, that showed no survival benefit again. But again, if you look back at the uh, hazard ratio for disease-free survival, that was 0.6 one. So not what we're seeing in Adora, but once again, a study showing disease-free benefit, but not necessarily translating to overall survival benefit. 
And this is the very early uh, uh, survival data coming out of Dura, where there's only been 29 deaths, uh, 20 in the placebo arm and, and, and nine in the treatment arm, so far too early to, to, to call at present time. Uh, and, and just lastly, to show this is again is, an, is a key meta-analysis, uh, which includes Adora in the disease-free survival, showing that um, there is the, the major benefit of using these EGFR inhibitors in resected EGFR cancer, but that if you take out Adora and look at the previous studies, even on meta-analysis, it doesn't quite reach significance. So what about recurrence? You know, where do these patients recur? And particularly when we looked at the uh, radiant study, there was a suggestion that there may be relatively high recurrence in the brain. And we know that in the stage four setting, uh, brain is a major problem. So if you look at the graph on the left, you can see relatively small numbers of patients relapsing in the brain, less than 1%. And this was presented in, in, in the New England Journal paper as a CNS disease-free survival. And again, was uh, very positively significant with, as you can see, very few events in the office of Mersenov. Um, but interestingly, you do see that a couple of events that did occur were happening around about that three-year mark when patients were discontinuing their osimertinib. So tolerability, I said it was key. So I've presented this uh, a couple of different ways. So uh, obviously within the study, you've got the osimertinib and placebo arms, and that gives you an idea of the extra impact of giving the drug. But you've also got the flora study of using it in, in the stage four setting. And so what you can see is that the um, level of grade three events in SAEs were slightly higher in patients receiving osimertinib, about four or five percent higher, but uh, nothing compared to what we see in the stage four setting where patients will run into more problems with their cancer. Uh, you can see the level of dose reductions was slightly higher in Adora than it was in Flora. Um, but actually, the discontinuations due to toxicity were actually slightly higher, interestingly, in Flora than they were in Adora, suggesting that this was indeed tolerable in this population. Um, of note, when we're talking to patients, there was a 3% ILD rate, interstitial lung disease rate, which we, we know, and that was relatively similar to what was seen in flora. So we, we do need to consent patients appropriately for that risk. So uh, we've got data in the adjuvant setting. And so there's always, and we know that in the stage four setting, you see a very high response rate. Well, what about bringing it into the neoadjuvant setting? So this is the early report from, uh, from ASCO of a study that's ongoing in the setting of 28 patients. And what you'll see is a high response rate as you expect, 71%. Um, all patients apart from one having an R0 resection, relatively high degree of pathological downstaging, including in some of the patients that had N2 disease and uh, one patient who had a pathological complete response. So very provocative early data. There is a proper study unrolling at the moment called Neoadora, which is going to randomize uh, 328 patients to um, uh, either uh, uh, osimertinib alone, osimertinib with chemotherapy or chemotherapy alone, with the major outcome being, uh, sorry, the primary outcome being major pathological response. And I'm sure we'll hear a little bit more about that endpoint uh, during Semarine's talk. But uh, that'll be a very interesting study to see that may help us guide um, these patients' care in the future. And I did say I'll talk about other molecular subtypes because it's all just not about EGFR anymore. We've got a number of treatments that are already well established in our NHS practice targeting ALK and BOS1. And over the last year or so, uh, developed ac got access to BRAF and then TRAC inhibitors with a number coming through this year, uh, including an EAMS that's just opened for MET inhibitors and potential access to a big population that have KRAS G12C mutations. I'll touch on right at the end. So theoretically, there's a large number of patients we could consider for this targeted approach in either the neoadjuvant or adjuvant setting. 
Um, so two studies just to touch on in, uh, in the uh, ALK setting. So a large phase three study, ALINA, which is looking um, in patients who have resected ALK lung cancer, but uh, slightly disappointed to me, this is set up more like the adjuvant EGFR uh, study. So patients either have the lectinib or chemotherapy. It's not an after chemotherapy study. And that always leads, uh, people um, can always lead to some criticism about you know, how patients would have done if they had chemotherapy and, and then the ALK inhibitor. Um, and it's two years of treatment rather than three years of treatment as in Adura. You can see the primary outcome is, is disease-free survival again. And there is also a neoadjuvant study with, for those patients that have a slightly higher bulk disease. This is a very small phase two study um, where patients get a lead in of eight weeks of electinib, then go on to surgery and then have adjuvant electinib for two years. Going back to this, that sort of primary outcome measure of major pathological response that we'll see in a number of the neoadjuvant studies. And, uh, you know, so a number of the populations that we looked at before are relatively small, you know, including things like RET and BRAF, including ALK. So can we actually afford to uh, run separate studies in these patients, particularly in the in neoadjuvant and adjuvant space where traditionally studies have been quite difficult to run? Uh, so I think the Americans are leading the way in this uh, through their lung cancer mutation consortium. They're trying to set up a widespread uh, screening of all patients going forward for resections and where um, they can then uh, in almost like a matrix uh, study approach, then put them on neoadjuvant treatment for two months uh, with extensive biological correlates to really look in relatively small numbers as to which of these strategies should be promising and, and can be taken forward. And you can see some of the arms that are planned within that study already. And lastly, I, I did just want to touch on KRAS G12C because uh, a number of us may be starting to treat this a relatively common mutation, which is about 10% of our population. In fact, there's even more in, in, my, in my constituency uh, in the Northeast. We have uh, almost 15% of our patients have KRAS G12C. Um, going back to that meta-analysis that I, sh I showed about survival in resected EGFR, they also commented on survival in resected KRAS uh, cancers. They didn't break it down by particular mutation type, but you can see that overall these, they said that these patients did significantly worse um, than, than KRAS wild-type patients in, in a resected setting. Uh, Sotarazib has just been licensed in America, it is not yet licensed in the UK, but I've shown the waterfall plot from the New England Journal showing a response rate of 40%, uh, um, but also showing that there is a relatively short median progression-free survival of approximately six months. And we're already starting to see papers coming out about resistance mechanisms and how cancers can become relatively rapidly resistant to this agent. So it sort of leads to the question in my mind as to whether this drug in particular might be one that we might want to use in the neoadjuvant setting rather than uh, the adjuvant setting. So um, I hope I've uh, summarized very quickly within the purposes of time and be delighted to take some questions to go into things in more detail. But uh, to highlight for you that, you know, adjuvant osimertinib is now available for our patients that have a resected EGFR mutant lung cancer, bearing in mind the strictures of the um, of the Bluetech form, which are that patients need to be fit, have an R0 resection and the common mutation. Um, there are important issues surrounding that study that you need to think about when discussing it with colleagues and with patients, that there is no overall survival data as yet, that this is not a substitute for chemotherapy. Most of those patients did have adjuvant chemotherapy within the study. And treatment on relapse, it, it remains uh, unclear. 
you know, I, I get more concerned about those patients who finish the three years of treatment and then relapse because I think it's unlikely in the NHS England setting that we will then be able to give them ozomertin again, which is our most potent weapon in the stage four setting. So that will be something to think about in, in years to come. I think uh, coming forward in terms of future work, uh, it's clear that we're going to be kept very busy looking in the precision space at neoadjuvant or perioperative strategies of, you know, that potentially giving eight weeks of upfront treatment and maybe two or three years of adjuvant treatment in patients that have had response. And, and that's going to come across a range of molecular subgroups. Some of them, like the KRAS G12C, should be big enough to uh, do proper studies on. Some of them, like RET, uh, and certainly the Intrax, may be so rare that we'll never be able to do proper studies except as small cohorts within a platform study. And lastly, just remember that testing is key. This, to my mind, uh, gets rid of the nonsense that we should only be EGFR testing in the stage three or four setting. It is very important that all patients with lung cancer get their tumor uh, fully profiled at presentation so we can guide MDT discussions, discuss prognosis and potential treatment options. And with that, thank you for your attention. I'm delighted to take questions. Fantastic. Many thanks, Alice. So what an ex excellent overview. So um, building on one of the stimuli for this webinar, which was the end of the, um, uh, this, this really important Adura study, which is changing practice around us. And as you highlighted, you know, we now live in a world where uh, presentations at international meetings and um, high impact publications aren't just for the academics. They really change practice within months, which is um, you know, after, you know, people like you and me practicing for many years in the NHS, where we felt like sometimes in a parallel universe, uh, it's a much more comfortable place to be. But we do end up with, um, you know, the really, some of the really interesting questions that you pose, like, you know, what do we do with this early data where we have dramatic PFS benefit, but no definitive OS um, uh, data just yet. Um, so, um, uh, well, maybe we could start with that as a, as, as a first question then. So, uh, what informs your conversations with patients in this context where they come to you post-surgery, they've got a, an activating mutation and, you know, it's the sort of patient who really wants to hear the issues. Uh, you know, I, I understand um, this might stop the, ca the cancer coming back, doctor, but if it's not going to make me live any longer, do I really want all those side effects? How do we, um, how do we make, help patients make that decision? And perhaps the very next question they might have for us is, uh, wouldn't it be better to save this drug for when the disease, if the disease does come back? Yeah, no, I, I think there's a, there's a, there's a very good question. Um, so in the, the sort of things I'm discussing at the moment is that if you are a believer in HADS ratios, and I have to say I'm not a great one, but you know, the, the, the data for Adora was stronger than for the uh, adjuvant and the radiant studies. Uh, so that's one thing I, I would, I would point out. Um, the second thing I would point out is that three years of living without active cancer, particularly EGFR cancer, uh, you would hope would translate into quality of life benefits, although we have not seen that properly as yet. And in general, ozimertinib is, you know, a very well tolerated agent. Going against that, you know, the 3% ILD rate is, is not zero. You know, I think we do see more ILD with ozomertinib than we do with the other EGFR inhibitors, and that seems to have translated across to this study. Um, and this issue about, you know, what we do on relapse, having said that, you know, 
So saving saving your best drug for when you have stage four disease, you know, I, I don't think that's the right thing necessarily to do. A, because of the impact of the cancer, you know, these often young people will often end up with CNS or bony disease that can be quite debilitating. But, um, you know, I'm sure a lot of us are now using osimertinib in the first line setting. And when you use osimertinib in the first line setting and then it becomes resistant and you were all aware that some patients do become resistant relatively quickly, we, we, we're then really stymied and we're starting to run out of options. So I, I don't think I would advocate just waiting until the patient has stage, stage four disease. So at the moment, I would be very upfront with them and say we don't have survival benefit, but I would probably be suggesting that, you know, this, this is something we should think about. I think we do, it, it will be really interesting to see some of the biomarker data coming forward to see if things like CFDNA can help stratify patients who should have this. And equally, um, we know there are other oncogenes that lead to poorer prognosis in patients with EGFR, particularly P53. So whether in particular, you know, in the future we'll be saying, oh yeah, you know, you've got a classic EGFR exon 19, you're fine. You can maybe not have adjuvant osimertinib. But or actually, you've got a P53, you're at high risk, you know, you've got a nasty cancer, maybe we should. But we don't have that data as yet, but hopefully we will coming forward. Okay, we've got some questions coming through on the on the um, chat now. And, and just a reminder to the audience, you can ask your questions during the next talk, you don't have to wait for the end, and that'll help me to, to prioritize them. Uh, but just before we come to that to them, and that one or two very uh, you know, very clear questions with very emphatic answers, I think that we do need to leave time for. Just coming back to the, the discussion with the patient. So we don't know this yet because we haven't had any patients come through far enough on this therapy in this setting, but um, how do you think fast forwarding, we're gonna be treating patients who maybe have had a, an adjuvant course of osimertinib, yeah. uh, then have a progression-free interval and then relapse? Yeah, I think that's going to be very difficult because we know in other countries they'll be able to rechallenge, and we'll, that will be the data that will guide us uh, whether uh, we will be allowed in, in, you know, in NHS England. I suspect not, and whether we'll be allowed to use some of the cheaper, you know, more uh, first or second generation inhibitors. Again, I, I don't know because the other option is going to be stopped. Probably what we should be allowed to do, Alistair, is rechallenge in that context, isn't it? Yeah, you know, well, you're going to, you, I guess we'll see data coming through from that, but I'm sure that's what's going to happen to patients on the study, isn't it? You know, uh, most of those weren't treated in the UK environment, and I would have thought, we'll see what subsequent, I'm sure they'll report on subsequent EGFR use, and I suspect a lot of it will be osmosis, particularly those who progress after the three years. Uh, okay, now, now first, uh, thanks for that. The first question from the chat is, um, um, this is an important thing to clarify, Sh should... Um, patients eligible for this Adura type treatment still have adjuvant chemotherapy. And I know you've mentioned that uh, yep. already, but perhaps you'd just like to underline that point. Yeah, no, I know. You know, the study data was using adjuvant chemotherapy. Uh, and you have to be very clear about that. And I, I hope I was that this is not a substitute for chemotherapy. This is, is an add-on in the vast majority of patients. You know, the subgroup analysis did suggest that the benefit was regardless of having chemotherapy or not. But the vast majority of patients who are in that primary outcome with that hazard ratio of 0.17 had had adjuvant chemotherapy. So, you know, I, I would be advising that patients who meet the criteria for adjuvant chemotherapy and are well enough should still be having adjuvant chemotherapy. And then I would be talking about them about moving on to adjuvant osimertinib afterwards. Thanks. And then the next one is, uh, which EGFR mutant patients are not Adura eligible? Now, I, I think we could probably interpret that question in, the, in a few ways, but let's start with a, a straightforward one. 
biological one. Uh, what do we do with patients who don't have the common uh, exon 19 deletion or, or exon 21 point mutation? Yeah, so you won't be allowed to treat them in the NHS because the blue tech criteria is very clear that it's only common mutations that they are suitable for. Um, and that's where the data was generated. Um, and in fact, most of the data for Osimertiv in general, even in stage four setting is, is in common mutations. There's some emerging in rarer mutations, but uh, so yeah, you won't be able to treat them. Yeah, okay. And uh, are there any other, while we're on the subject of eligibility, and maybe this is what the question had in mind, are there any other contraindications to Aussie in the adjuvant setting? I can't think there's I, anything I, very specific. I don't, I don't think so. You know, patients need to be fit, but you'd presume if they've got through the surgery that they should be relatively fit. Um, you know, there's some contraindications about QT. You should be checking their QT interval and ECG and stuff like that. But I, I'd be surprised if a patient who had been fit enough for surgery would not be fit enough for adjuvant osimertinib. Right. Um, okay. Uh, what about uh, what about testing? You alluded to this in actually there it is in the screen in front of us. The last point on your summary. Yep. Testing. Um, uh, what's our perception across the country in some respects this should make things easier right we don't have we don't have to um uh hold our pathologist's hands when they're hand wringing about which patients to test it's if you've got a lung adenocarcinoma you need to test it no matter what the stage of the patient has come from Yes, and that should actually make our pathologist life easier. Although I work very closely with pathologists through the GLH, and you know I think it's fair to say that they're struggling at the moment because of workforce and everything else in terms of COVID. So do be gentle with your pathologist, but do you know if they say, well, we shouldn't be treating in, in early stage disease? No, you have to say to them, no, I'm sorry, we need to do it. I accept that your workforce may this may be a challenge to implement. How can I work with you to implement this? But actually, as you say, it should be easier because they shouldn't need to be going back to the blocks in, in, in the long run. Yeah, so it should be easier, but doesn't doesn't mean it will, right? I suppose I'm extrapolating from when EGFR testing first came along, it was uh, alarmingly late in the day that um, we got to any kind of clear uh, um, homogenous rollout of testing with e equality of access around the country. Yeah. So a little bit of um, a learning curve for the multidisciplinary teams of the UK and elsewhere, I expect. Uh, Alistair, that's been tremendous and we could go on discussing and the questions are still coming in, but we've we've hit six o'clock. And if we're going to uh, give uh, um, Sam Marine a fair, a fair um, crack, we better move on. So um, we're moving, changing tack a little bit now from targeted therapy in the perioperative setting to immunotherapy and once again we have some important clinical data recently emerging um, which I'm sure will be the nucleus of, of Sam Marine's uh, uh, discussion with us um, and uh, uh, again knowing um, her, her um, extensive experience and knowledge of this area she'll be telling us an awful lot more besides. So, so Sam Marine again you'll be familiar with Professor Ahmed is a consultant medical oncologist in Leicester and her title is immunotherapy moving to operable disease um, and there's no question mark I note Sam Reen. There's no question mark that's right. <laughs> Thanks uh, James. Um, these are my disclosures um, and as this was a master class I've made this over inclusive so please forgive me and I'll be going through this very swiftly. So those of you who are new to thoracic oncology I want this to be inclusive and hopefully you get a little bit of background from what I'm talking about. So we've all know what immunotherapy or checkpoint inhibitors are. It's this PDL1 um, 
and on the T cells, uh, the PD1 on the T cells and PDL1 on the tumor cells, which we're looking at as the interaction of the, this T cell with the tumor cell, which is inhibitory, and these antibodies block it. So we've got nivolumab and pembrolizumab, as you know, targeting PD1. And then you have a TISO, DERVA, and Valumab um, targeting PDL1. So, a great um, effort by drug development and clinical trialists over the last five to six years has really transformed how we treat non small cell lung cancer. And checkpoint inhibitors have been the backbone of treating lung cancer for the last five, six years. And I'll just go through a few pivotal studies so that you know why we're now moving immunotherapy into operable disease. So this was, to me, landmark study, Keynote 24. And those of you who've not seen this study, this is for stage four non-small cell lung cancer, the first time that pdl one really was used as a biomarker. And this was specifically using um, TPS of over 50%, so the really high expresses. Um, and it's randomized one-to-one -one pembrolizumab versus platinum doublet chemotherapy, primary endpoint PFS. And just to point out on progressive disease, there was crossover as well. So that's really important to remember when we're looking at overall survival. So here we are um, at 11 months. There was a massive difference. And this was presented um, year was it? I can't quite remember which year now, 2016, ESMO 2016, and there was a standing ovation with this, um, and people couldn't get into the hall uh, to hear this. I remember there was a crowd outside, and this was really remarkable change for non, uh, treating advanced non-small cell lung cancer. Then we looked at more mature data on this study, and this was the updated overall survival. And still, you know, out at um, 18 months, we were seeing a big difference that we were getting 60% of our patients um, surviving at that point. And this was a follow-up of 19 months. So no doubt, very positive and significant pivotal study in non-small cell lung cancer in the advanced setting. Then um, we noted, if I just go back one, when you looked at this uh, PFS curve, you, you saw this sudden downfall of patients within the first three to six months. And we really couldn't wonder uh, why this was and why were patients falling off their perch early on in the disease. And it looked like as if some patients had very progressive disease and therefore immunotherapy hadn't got enough time to work. And therefore, Keno 189 was um, a study looking at combination of chemotherapy with checkpoint inhibitor, namely pembrolizumab. And it, that was the theory behind it, that it was to try and salvage that fall off that we got in that first line setting with single agent checkpoint inhibitors. And this is a very straightforward study, um, looking at stage four patients, again, uh, randomizing to platinum doublet with pembrolizumab or just platinum doublet. Um, and uh, the primary endpoints were overall survival and progression-free survival. 
And these were the curves, very, very positive, as you would expect. The higher the PDL1 expression, the, the greater the difference you, uh, you saw between giving checkpoint inhibitors and chemotherapy versus chemotherapy alone. Um, and significantly, this really established the role of combination chemo checkpoint inhibitors in non-small cell lung cancers. A very similar study, 407, was done in the squamous population, and this showed very similar results. Um, the design was exactly the same. So, NICE approvals, as you know, single-agent pembrolizumab for really high expresses, and most of us use um, this um, uh, single-agent pembrolizumab in patients who we think have got smaller volume disease, not that symptomatic, high expression, and we can get away with just single-agent checkpoint inhibitors. Most of us now have moved to combination chemotherapy and pembrolizumab in any pdl one expresses, and those uh, with high pdl one expresses, we're using this for bulky symptomatic disease. So then, obviously, everything that we use in advanced disease, we then move into the earlier setting. And then this is a pivotal study, which you'll all have heard about, Pacific study, looking at inoperable stage three disease. Again, um, this was using concurrent chemoradiotherapy, then moving on to uh, a year of Devalumab versus placebo. And there was no crossover here. Um, the co-primary endpoints of PFS and overall survival. And this was, don't forget, inoperable stage three disease. And you've all seen this um, result, and it's really staggering at four year um, update, overall st survival, more than 10% difference using Devalumab. Okay, so I would argue really that we're now reaching a stage where concurrent chemoradiotherapy, though I know it was inoperable disease, is challenging stage three disease that we sent um, to our surgical colleagues. Okay, so a few important considerations when we're trying to move from advanced disease setting to um, a curative position, because what we want to know is, first of all, outcomes are sacked, given neoadjuvantly, are they the same as adjuvant? And you've all seen this, so I just wanted to capture this in uh, a table. This is adjuvant chemotherapy trials and a met LACE meta-analysis showed that there was 5% um, overall survival difference in, uh, at five years using adjuvant chemotherapy in um, uh, four centimeter large tumors or stage two um, to three, uh, three disease. And that was well established. And then we had this um, meta, uh, the systematic meta-analysis looking at preoperative chemotherapy in non-small cell lung cancers. And these are really difficult studies to recruit to, I have to say, and can be quite heterogeneous. But the uh, 15 of these uh, randomized control studies were used in this meta-analysis. And again, it showed very exactly the same uh, survival difference, really, as you would see in adjuvant setting. So 5% difference at uh, five years using neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Now, does that then um, translate to immune chop? checkpoint blockade, um, and that's, we just need to wait and see, but we can probably say that adjuvant versus neoadjuvant chemotherapy is exactly the same. So the next question is, is immune checkpoint inhibitor blockade safe, safe preoperatively? Because the last thing we want to do is compromise patients who 
are in this curative setting and not um, allow them to have their curative operation as a consequence of toxicity. So we had a range of phase two um, trials looking at safety, feasibility, uh, achievement of surgical surgery, um, uh, surgical feasibility rate, um, uh, that some of their endpoints were pathological, a complete pathological response, and this major pathological response, which I'll tell you about in a minute. And that was pretty much established that immune checkpoint inhibitor blockade was safe preoperatively, did not um, confound patients going to have surgery. So we were pretty sure about that. The next consideration really is, does pathological complete response rate have prognostic value in non-small cell? And is that going to translate into disease-free survival or overall survival? And we've seen that in breast cancer, you know, that there's a big argument, lots of studies done. So um, these are some of the studies that have been done with chemotherapy. Um, looking at pathological complete response. The one I've just highlighted is the only one that's been um, uh, using checkpoint inhibitors. Um, so essentially we've got quite a lot of evidence suggesting that pathological complete response is probably a good surrogate marker for disease-free survival. I'm not sure that overall survival we can be make that leap yet, but hopefully the data is accruing. There is another entity that we've um, seen in non-small cell lung cancer called major pathological response. And that is when there's less than 10% viable tumor, tumor cells detectable in the resection and nodes. And this strongly correlates with survival. Um, so I think we can safely say that complete pathological response and major pathological response can be used as surrogate markers in our clinical trials um, because disease-free survival and overall survival obviously takes such a much longer time and are more expensive both cost-wise and for patient-wise. So we've got looking at um, getting to the meat of this talk, uh, neoadjuvant chemotherapy, uh, immunotherapy studies, and we've got three ongoing at the moment. Um, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about Checkmate 816, which is recently presented. So this was a study looking at large tumors over four centimeters, and all of those um, uh, patients really that you would be considering for adjuvant chemotherapy. So stage 1b to 3a disease, they had to have good ECOG status, they were stratified by stage and pdl one expression, and they received um, three cycles, so three cycles of chemo-nevo, so platinum doublet and nivolumab, um, only three cycles versus chemotherapy alone, and uh, they then received surgery. And the main primary analysis um, was presented for the above uh, two therapies that you can see. And the primary endpoints there were pathological complete response, and secondary endpoint was major pathological response and overall survival, which we haven't got yet. So really just um, looking at a summary of treatment and um, surgery summary, this was again presented recently. So majority of patients were able to complete three cycles of um, chemo, um, chemotherapy and chemotherapy nivolumab. And this is a stage by stage um, uh, I suppose categorization of the patients, and you can have a you can have a look at this um, in detail actually. But just for brevity of time, really, the main 
take home messages here are when we gave patients nivolumab and chemotherapy, it seemed that they appeared to have obviously a greater response rate, but also the time that it took during the surgery was much shorter. Their complication rate seemed to be much less as well. And and the next slide I think has got, here we are. Yes, so this has got the complication rate. And really what struck me was the, was the level of pain um, that patients on chemotherapy experienced with the surgery. And I think that probably suggests that they were able to have, those, those patients who had nivolumab and chemotherapy were able to have less maybe that's um, thoracotomy rather than open thoracotomy and therefore um, they were experiencing less pain and certainly the tumors were much smaller when they got in so I'll show you that in just a minute and in terms of adverse events really um, they, there wasn't very much a discontinuation compared to chemotherapy um, so immunotherapy didn't lead to too much adverse events as we were um, hoping that, that that was the case and then looking at the primary endpoint a significant difference in overall response and in so in complete pathological response and then in major pathological response there's a very big difference compared to chemotherapy and this was the primary and the secondary endpoints of this study and then if you look at the waterfall plots so these are individual patient data you can see a greater proportion of patients in the nevo chemo arm achieving um, both pathological complete responses and also major pathological response compared to chemotherapy alone Okay, so looking at the subgroup analysis, really uh, every subgroup of patients um, responded as well to chemo nevo um, uh, compared to the intention to treat population. Um, so a few things I've highlighted. This was quite a high risk uh, population. So there were two thirds, almost 60% of patients in stage three disease. The PDL1 expression did seem to have a bearing, but even the low PDL1 expressors, so less than 1%, had good responses and better than chemotherapy. So, all in all, I think 816, a very successful study, and gave us a lot of confidence that neoadjuvant chemotherapy, immunotherapy can be delivered and pathological pathological response could possibly be a surrogate marker for disease-free survival. So the next question really is, does pathological complete response um, have prognostic value in non-small cell lung cancer? And that study uh, gives us some indication that that's the, the case. The next um, consideration is, can neoadjuvant checkpoint inhibitor blockade give long-term immunogenicity? And that question um, is still out there, but we've got some uh, preclinical studies suggesting that. But um, I thought in order to answer that, I will show you the next study. And these are all the adjuvant studies that we've got. So it's not necessarily answering my consideration, but adjuvant studies we think probably give you that long-term uh, immune uh, response that you want. So these are a whole plethora of adjuvant studies that um, are, are underway and I'm going to concentrate on Empower 010. And this was presented very recently at ASCO um, and this was very similar population to um, the Checkpoint A1 
six in that stage 1b so larger tumors and stage 3 disease were included except this time this was adjuvant therapy so patients had their surgery then went on to a platinum doublet um, and then after they completed uh, between one to four cycles of chemotherapy, they were then randomized um, to atezolizumab or best supportive care and follow-up. Um, there were, the, the, in terms of the primary endpoints, disease-free survival, and then there was a hierarchical um, analysis, and I'll go through that in a little bit for you. pdl one expression was also a stratification point, so we'll look at that. Uh, key secondary endpoints of overall survival. Okay, so this is quite important, so bear with me. So disease-free survival in PDL one over 1% in that um, stage 2 to 3A population. If that was positive, then they would go on to the next stage, which would be all randomized patients in that um, stage. And then if that was positive, then they would go on to looking at the intention to treat population, including stage 1B. And so those are the three uh, groups that were presented at ASCO. Okay, so just the baseline characteristics. There wasn't particularly anything um, unusual. Uh, squamous represented about a third of patients, whereas the non-squames were about two thirds. Um, in this study, we had a very small proportion of 1B patients, so about 12% um, here. And uh, stage three disease was about 40%. Uh, PDL1 expression, as uh, you can see, over 1% was uh, uh, performed by SP263 um, uh, analysis. Right, so here's the uh, disease-free survival curves. The first one shows you the first analysis, which is PDL1 over 1%, and that is very significantly positive in my view. So has a ratio of 0.66 and certainly met its um, uh, statistical evaluation with regards to the p-value. And then the next one uh, we have is all patients in that stage, so including all the PDL ones. Um, so then you're getting a slightly watering down of that population. And then when you look at the intention to treat arm in that third graph, you're getting even a smaller difference. So my take home really for this is that atezolizumab gives maximal benefit for your PDL1 uh, um, expression over 1% in the stage 2 to 3A disease, though 1Bs probably get a small benefit. So looking at PDL1 expression and the, the subgroup analysis, and the, this was a pre-specified analysis, so this isn't something they worked out afterwards. Um, so you can see the patients who um, benefit most are the high PDL1 expresses, then we have the over 1%. And I would say the ones who are negative PDL1, uh, we should not probably be spending the money and the patient's time giving them a whole year of atezolizumab um, with all the toxicities that it may ensue with very little benefit. Okay, so in terms of safety, there was nothing, no new signals that we um, could see here. Um, grade three or four immune mediated um, AEs in the region of about 7%. But of course, you know, you're giving this for a year, so at any point, this could happen and even after you stop these um, adverse events can happen so we need to be mindful of that 
Okay, so so that's not really answered my um, my consideration, but that's um, possibly we've got to wait a little bit longer. Okay, so I'm on to my summary slide. You'd be pleased to hear, and uh, in time, I'm pleased to say. Um, so, in summary, we've got is disease-free survival sufficient to change practice, practice in adjuvant studies? And this is the question that we've asked earlier. Adora and Pacific, you know, with regards to Zimertum, Devalumab, respectively, have been approved on disease-free survival alone. Um, disease-free survival is actually, I, I would argue, very important for clinical benefit to patients because as they progress psychologically, physically, they deteriorate. So even if we don't give them overall survival difference, if we give them a disease-free survival um, interval, which is long, um, then I think that's worth investing in. Overall survival takes years to mature and approvers and clinicians have to make decisions on, a, on the available data that they have. Optimal duration of adjuvant treatment still is arbitrary and we tend to think um, a year is uh, about right. And, you know, in breast cancer, we've been trying to de-escalate treatment and perhaps that's what we might need to think about in uh, lung cancer as well, because we don't want to over-treat patients and spend all this money uh, unnecessarily and with all the health risks that involves. And just to the last bit at the bottom um, is for you to all look out for the studies that are coming out with again adjuvant, new adjuvant studies with primary endpoints as disease-free survival. Okay, so thank you. Well, thank you, Samarine. What a fantastic survey of a, uh, you know, of a burgeoning field, really, isn't it? And that was, um, I, I think, really informative to have the, the newly emerging, uh, you know, big randomised adjuvant studies uh, put in context um, and underlined by the neoadjuvant data that you've that you've discussed there. Um, so uh, once again, I remind the audience um, that you can submit a, a, a text question, and I will. I will um, uh, I will ask that for you. Uh, and um, uh, um, while we're waiting for questions to come through, I wanted to start, Samreen, by asking you the same question that I asked Alistair, really, which was around, um, around biomarker testing. Um, is, uh, what are the practical issues for us in our multidisciplinary teams in getting a PDL1 status in, uh, in the um, in, in resected specimens? Is it a bit more straightforward because this is just another brown stain for the pathologists to, to, to do? Well, I suppose it depends because if they've had biopsies pre-surgery, then that's the easiest way. So then because the um, pathologists don't necessarily uh, look at what stage it is until the MDT, so they've already done all their reflex testing. The problem arises when um, you've got a surgical specimen only and they've not had a preoperative biopsy, I guess, then you have to specifically say that we need to do this, this and this testing. So I think the biopsies all get tested reflexly. It's just the specimens that really uh, we worry about. And also now that there is a change in therapy and the whole field is now changing, um, certainly in our center, we, we do it all up front now. Um, we're not doing NGS, so I'd like to add, so we're a little bit behind with that. Being a big centre, um, our GLH is certainly not up and running, so um, we're doing panel testing and that's really not great. But we are doing it reflexly. Okay, and maybe I should have um, asked this question first, and that is, do we actually need pdl one status in this context? I think, I think your views on this um, 
uh, came across during your presentation, but perhaps you'd just like to answer that 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 point specifically. Um, how how, um, how guided are we going to be if we you know had access to atezolizumab today um, by PDL one status? So I think if um, approval comes through for uh, checkpoint inhibitors in the early disease setting, which I think is probably forthcoming. Um, if we take the data from the, um, the study I've just presented to you, certainly there was very, well, very little, if not any benefit for PDL1 negative patients. So we will need to test PDL1 either on resection or the, or the um, biopsy in order for us um, oncologists to be able to give the right treatment. So in my mind, Yes, <laughs> we, do we, don't, we don't have to agonize too much about whether, whether that, that subgroup analysis was sufficiently powered and the rest. I suppose there's some other context in checkpoint inhibitor use, aren't there? Particularly, well, including in lung cancer, where uh, we're, we're um, well, I suppose with that particular drug, actually, where we're, we're quite um, inclusive about the PDL1 status of the patients we treat. I mean, in this study, this was a pre specified. Um, analysis. So it was an ad hoc analysis. So um, unlike in Pacific, and we, you know, that's been approved. So um, I, I feel that's as good as evidence that we're going to get. Okay, yes. And I suppose in, in the adjuvant context, the risk and benefit is, is particularly um, stark, isn't it? And offering, offering a, a toxic therapy for two years, which may not move, move the dial is um, potentially problematic. Um, what do we do? Um, I wonder what we do. Uh, this is slightly cheeky because it's not really, it's asking you a clinical scenario, which really is not um, within uh, the envelope of what you were asked to talk to us about today. But, but does the sort of data that you've been presenting help us deal with the sort of situations, I suppose, that are increasingly coming up uh, in our clinics where we have patients with advanced disease or locally advanced disease who've had fantastic responses the checkpoint inhibition and the question of revisiting or visiting for the first time radical treatment including surgery comes up and we do discuss these patients in our multidisciplinary meetings. Um, does this give us a bit more confidence to say well yeah effectively they've had neoadjuvant checkpoint inhibition let's give them their, um, their radical surgical treatment now? Um, so I suppose, are you saying for inoperable disease? Well, I'm saying, say, you know, for those patients, I mean, I'm not, uh, I suppose they're, they're not common, but they are coming up with monotonous regularity. Patients who might have had a solitary bone or liver disease, which is no longer evident uh, after checkpoint inhibition. Um, uh, oh, sorry, on, I beg your pardon, yes. On a PET scan, you know, does that give us a bit more confidence to go back to our surgeons or our clinical oncology colleagues and, and ask for radical treatment where... Um, in, in the past, we may have done that, but with on a bit of a wing and a prayer, I suppose. Yeah, I would suggest uh, you recruit them all into the Saron study. <laughs> so that's looking at exactly that, but that's metachronous, uh, sorry, synchronous um, metastases. And what you're asking me is about metachronous onset of um, metastases. And I think we're all um, leaning towards that now, depending on the disease-free interval. And that's really important. Your uh, concept of how sensitive the, the cancer originally was to the systemic treatment you gave them. So all those are the main considerations and of course the performance status as always. Okay, questions on the chat. Um, 
a question which I think is, is essentially asking about the uh, PDL1 low but detectable patient group. And um, do we know from a randomized study you finished by presenting to us um, what we should do with those patients in between? So you, the answer to my first question from you was that maybe for patients with uh, negative PDL1 expression, we spare them adjuvant checkpoint inhibition. For patients with high expression, um, this looks a pretty attractive approach. Um, what, do, what do we know about the, the 1 to 49 group in this context? Yeah, so the pre-specified analysis, um, if you remember, uh, in this impasse uh, study was looking at over 1% PDL1 expression. So that included all of those interim patients, um, and they all got a benefit. So I think any PDL1 positive patient, if you look at the data um, and scrutinize the, the way it was stratified, in my mind, that was very clear um, that all PDL1 over 1% had a benefit. Um, so it, the, the, the benefit only became diluted when you included the negative patients. Yeah, okay. And then my, I, the final question again from the chat, I, I think is good for both of you. Um, uh, so tune back in Alistair, uh, um, if you're not already. Uh, and that, that question was um, for a patient in the post-operative setting who's got an EGFR mutation and let's say uh, also strong PDL one expression. What should we be offering them? Why don't you start, um, uh, Samreen, and then we'll see if Alistair's got something to add. Okay, so my take on that is the driver mutation is the important thing, and of course that will be the EGFR if you feel that that is a definite result. So in my mind, PDL one really doesn't doesn't hold fire with regards biomarker a predictive nature of checkpoint inhibition response. So you go for the driver mutation, and um, which overwhelmingly will be the EGFR, I would say. Uh, Alistair, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, no, I deliberately put my patient had a PDL one of 55% just to, to bring that forward. And I, I agree with Samarine, you know, we know in the stage four setting that small, you know, a proportion of EGFR and out mutants will have PDL one expression, and that means nothing. Certainly in the stage four setting, I would strongly advocate that patients with oncogene driven lung cancers are treated as an oncogene driven lung cancer and not as uh, pushed into that sort of uh, adjuvant immunotherapy space. That's great. So we're ending on uh, some consensus, um, which is always good. Uh, look, thank you very much, um, Alistair and Samreen, for two spectacular talks. Thank you, uh, audience, for some, some great questions and, um, you know, qu questions actually which have, which have picked out the really key points rather than laboring on esoteric issues. So, um, uh, you know, that you, you're, you're obviously listening to our fantastic speakers. Um, that's it for this webinar. We've pretty much kept the time. Um, tune in next time for um, uh, the next webinar, which is uh, about a month from now. No, about two months from now. We're giving you August off. I think we all need it. Um, Monday, the 27th of September um, at this, this uh, 5.30 time slot again. Many thanks, everyone, and good night.